When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What's up, everyone? Welcome to another episode of Bro History. It's Henry Zamoda and Danny of Deljabar. Danny, what's up, brother? Chilling, man. As per usual, how about yourself? I'm doing pretty well. Right now, I'm actually recording this podcast on a Pilates machine. <laughs> what are you like on a on one of those uh, Pelotons or some shit like that? <laughs> no, not a Peloton, like an actual Pilates machine. I don't even know. Um, what those so I'm look traveling like. right now. I'm not <laughs> in a normal recording studio. So I'm in a guest room. And I have, uh, I'm on a literal Pilates machine, so I have like a desk made out of it. There's like a block that you use to like uh, spring yourself off. That's my, uh, that's my actual desk, and I'm actually my butt is on the, on the actual Pilates machine itself. <laughs> so not the not the most ideal recording environment. Hopefully, this room the the there's there's no like foam on the on the walls or anything. So forgive me if the audio is not perfect and crisp. But rarely is the audio perfect and crisp on this show, so um, <laughs> you're probably used to it by now. Yeah, probably used to it by now. But what's up with you, man? I know you're you're in a weird position too. Yeah, man. I, I also need to pre-apologize for any audio inconsistencies. I'm in the closet right now, and um, and no, I'm not repressing like my sexual identity. I'm literally in a closet. Uh, there is uh, in the place that I'm staying right now a small walk-in closet that is. Uh, uh, Pretty small in terms of walking closet size, but uh, large in terms of like I don't know New York City bedrooms. <laughs> um, so there's a small little desk in here with a chair. So I'm just kind of hanging out in here, and I, I'm guessing that I'm hoping that the you know rack of women's clothing uh, to the right of me is is helping to damper some of the uh, some of the audio resonance here. But uh, who knows? <laughs> Maybe it'll sound really good. <laughs> hey, probably the smaller the room, the better. Usually, yeah. Um, now uh, you guys know. Both of us are, are kind of in the middle of uh, moving around a lot. Danny's moving to Puerto Rico or in the process. How's everything going with that? So far, it's been nuts. I've put on several offers on places, and I've been up it a few times. And um, at this point, I think we're we're going to continue searching and putting out stuff. But I think I'm going to end up having to rent for a little while just because it's taking too long. Um, but rent here is pretty cheap. You can get a whole lot of apartment for not a whole lot of money. So I guess that's not necessarily terrible, but kind of throws a little bit of a wrench in my plan of not paying money to someone else to live somewhere instead of owning an asset myself. So, you know, trying to go for that financial independence and gain some generational wealth, you know, but I guess that'll, that'll be on hold for a couple of months, maybe. Well, how does that even work in Puerto Rico? When you buy a place, mm -hmm. do you use a, like, are you using a bank to get a mortgage? Like how? Yeah, man, it's, it's the United work? States. It's, it's the same. It's a, you with can use a U.S. bank. Yeah, it's the same with minor changes. U.S. banks are typically okay. like it, it's harder to get a loan in from a U.S. bank for Puerto Rico. But there's a lot of really good banks here in, in Puerto Rico that, that offer mortgages that are 
really good rates. I mean, more interest rates everywhere in the entire country, including Puerto Rico, are incredibly low, which is part of the reason why I was like, all right, well, let's let me jump on, and make that next move, and actually purchase a property. But um, you know, I think having that would be great for you know inflation. <laughs> you know, real estate typically is a good place to put your money um, in that respect. But um, yeah, it's hard. It's just hard everywhere. <laughs> Well, let's just say if um, Puerto Rico becomes a state within the next um, couple of decades, that would probably hurt your um, – th- that would probably um, make the appeal of losing to Puerto- moving to Puerto Rico um, less. You know, because... I, dis- I disagree in a, in, a, in a way, but why, why, okay. why, why do you think it would hurt it? Because a lot of people are moving to Puerto Rico because of they don't pay capital gains taxes. Right. I mean, that that definitely is a, a thing. Um, I'm not like a crypto bro, so that's not necessarily something that I'd be taking advantage of fully. Um, but it, and it's not all like, you know, fine and dandy either. You, there's like loopholes. There's like things you have to do. Like you have to donate, I think, something like $10,000 to Puerto Rico in some way, shape or form. So it's not free. Right. So really, it's it's only really good for people who are making a lot of money in investments and in capital gains. You know, um, I think the draw, the tax draw is like that you wouldn't have any federal income tax, but also that income has to come from Puerto Rico, not from elsewhere. So there's a lot of like little loopholes that you could take advantage of if you're in that, you know, very rich, uh, you know, very wealthy um, thing. But, uh, you know, it's it's. There's pros and cons to it. I, I personally think if, if it became a state, it would actually be better uh, because more people would be aware of the fact that you can come and move here. Uh, and I don't think a lot of uh, people in the United States even truly understand that Puerto Rico is the United States uh, and that you know you all Puerto Rican citizens are United States citizens. With the exception of the fact that we can't vote here, it's not any different. And Puerto Rico is really cool. So I think um, a lot of people would end up moving to Puerto Rico uh, if it became a state. Um, so you think it would become a new Florida where just going there to retire? Yeah. We're like more like a new Hawaii, you know, cause Hawaii is fucking gorgeous. And there was like a mass migration over there when it became a state. So, you know, I feel like the same thing would happen here, which would be beneficial if you owned any property uh, here. Because Hawaii. They... Yeah. So, um, and what were you saying? All right, whatever. Danny's moving to Puerto Rico. Um, I'm traveling right now. So we're both dealing we're both kind of trying to make um this work so we apologize again for missing um i guess we're episodes have been coming out less frequently but we're trying to get back on track by january things should be a lot better as far as like putting out episodes consistently every single week uh but today this is probably going to be a longer episode just because so much to talk about um i'm not sure how we're going to divide this up if it goes too long we may even split it into different episodes but um we're going to be talking about the fall of the Soviet Union, but also we're going to be talking about um, the current crisis right now, or I don't know, crisis might be too strong of a word, but the current situation between Russia and Ukraine and, um, you know, how the corporate press has been following this. So um, I guess where should we start? Should we just start with, um, I guess, have you been following the news or at least like Russian media? where um you know this marks a 30-year anniversary of the please all right sorry i was interrupted um so right now this christmas this month of december it marks the 30-year anniversary of the official disintegration of the soviet union and 
it's interesting because last week or or the past couple of weeks we've been talking about how rare it is to have a peaceful a peaceful secession movement. Well, the breakup of the Soviet Union is an example of a peaceful secession movement. Um, or more peaceful secession movement than the likes of like Yugoslavia, which we've been talking about a lot lately. Which we will so, also continue um, to talk about in this episode as well. I yeah, think. we're gonna do we're gonna do the follow up episode on Kosovo next. Um, but today we're gonna talk about. I think it's worth talking about the fall of the Soviet Union to provide more context and even that. But so just to give you some historical context, on December eighth, nineteen ninety one, in the village of Visculi, Belarus. The heads of state of Russia, Belarus, and Ukraine, they signed the Belovesha Agreement on, uh, and it was basically the agreement that ended the USSR, and it established um, a commonwealth of independent states. So Gorbachev, he resigns on December 25th, and the next day, the Soviet Union ceases to exist. So there is no more general secretary of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union, and all the satellite states were now independent. Now, in Russian media, um, there are these two documentaries that were just broadcasted by Channel One Russia, which is which is state television. And what makes these documentaries really interesting is that they're apparently very hard on both Gorbachev and Yeltsin. And um, I guess one of the themes is they hold a very accusatory tone about the role of the U.S. in the destruction of the Russian economy in the 1990s. Now. Um, I haven't watched these, so I honestly I can't find them in English. But there's this newsletter I, I subscribe to on Russian politics from um, a Columbia professor. His name's Gilbert Doctoro, and uh, I'm going to quote right from his newsletter. So, the film Russia: Its Most Recent History fine tunes the long existing attacks on former Soviet President Gorbachev for unforgivable uh, naivety in the dealings with the United States and its Western allies as the Cold War wound down. The Red Army was withdrawn from East Germany and the Warsaw Pact countries, but Gorbachev did not consider reserving at least one base in each of these countries to ensure Russian security interests were respected, nor did he demand appropriate financial compensation for the withdrawal to to provide housing and necessities to the troops arriving back in Russia. We are told that all this was achievable had Gorbachev done his job properly, defended Russia's legitimate interests, and and not been content to bask in the warm reception he enjoyed in Western capitals and media. Nor did Gorbachev do anything to secure the civil rights of the large Russian minority populations of the Baltic states as they entered upon withdrawing from the the Union when the West would surely have agreed. This sober and accurate critique of decision-making by the widely discredited Gorbachev is now matched by equally devastating criticism of Yeltsin for negotiating terms for the breakup of the USSR by which Russia did not use its leverage with the other Union republics. We are told that Yeltsin was drunk during much of the Belivosha meetings. If only he had kept a cool head, he, had, he could have demanded of Ukrainian President Kravchuk the secession of Crimea back to the Russian Federation, but his only interest was to achieve the dissolution as quickly as possible and as so to take over state power from Gorbachev. So um, it's interesting. It's interesting. <laughs> so it's interesting that it was um, it had um, this tone regarding Yeltsin, and, and I'll explain why. So here are some of the career highlights of, of uh, Boris Yeltsin. So when he... Boris Yeltsin was like a uh, manic depression. He was a manic depressive. Um, you know, he was a drunk. He was very corrupt. 
he was, um, you know, he tried committing suicide a couple of times while president. He was a disaster in the 1990s. Um, the transition from the Soviet uh, economy to a market economy was highly mis mismanaged. Um, there was hyperinflation. So Russians lost their savings in the great inflation of 1992 uh, and 93, um, where all of Russian savings were, were wiped out. Um, the nation's boundaries were, were pushed back to what they had been about 300 years earlier. And the Russian, Russia was, was looted by oligarchs using state power to purchase entire state-run industries. Um, and then, you know, another note is as he also shelled the parliament back in 1993 uh, during a coup. So back in 93, Yel the Yeltsin, um, there was a political constitutional crisis where he actually dissolved the Russian parliament and, and basically it almost set off a full-scale civil war. And, you know, that's why there's no Duma. I mean, that's why there's a Duma in Russia, not a parliament in Russia, because they were dissolved. When, when you mean shelled, but, you don't mean like literally like put artillery shelled like i mean they were they were shelled and there was a there was fighting and about and hundreds of people were killed so you, literally they used artillery <laughs> yeah that's they literally crazy. were using force that's fucking um, crazy i thought that was just like yeah, a, a figure so, of speech you you he literally used artillery against the parliament yeah so holy shit <laughs> so all right um there's if you guys listen to radio war nerd they do a, a four-part series on the um, Yeltsin coup, and it's about ten hours long with all their with all the content they put out. They do a really good job, and the guy who kind of leads the conversation is uh, is Mark Ames, who was a reporter there. Like he was on site reporting at on the on the Yeltsin coup in '93. So I would encourage you guys to listen to that because he'll give the entire backstory about the oligarchs and and how the hyperinflation in Russia. It's, it's a really good podcast. Um, but what makes the criticism so interesting of Yeltsin is that Putin, um, and this is Putin aligned media who's releasing this documentary. They don't usually criticize Yeltsin in public because it was Yeltsin who appointed Vladimir Putin as prime minister. And it was, it was Yeltsin who resigned a year early from office, setting up Putin to be the incumbent president in the 2000 elections. Before, so Putin worked for the mayor of St. Petersburg um, after being the head of the FSB. And, um, you know, after that mayor was voted out of office, he was brought in to work as Yeltsin's deputy chief of presidential staff. So Putin owes his political careers to the to the clique of oligarchs um, like Boris Berzowski and uh, Mikhail Khodorkovsky, who controlled Yeltsin. But at the same time, large segments of the Russian society they were repulsed by Yeltsin. Um, you know, there was like a very, if you read about Russia in the early nineties, there was this period of like self-loathing in Russia. You know, there, the Soviet union was, had collapsed. You know, Russia was now a third world country. They had this kind of vulgar, uh, president as head of state. Um, he was so unpopular that Yeltsin couldn't endorse Putin because of how unpopular he was. Well, why don't but, we, um, why don't we uh, like unpack this a little bit and, and go over like the actual fall of the Soviet Union? Maybe that will help to like see why Gorbachev was portrayed so negatively. Yeah. So um, first and foremost, you know, Gorbachev kind of has a mixed reception historically. Um, 
you know, a lot of it is negative. Some of it is positive, though. I think, you know, it's kind of a mixed bag, but I think it definitely is an accomplishment that the breakup of the Soviet Union was largely peaceful. Um, I think that's almost a miraculous event. I mean, if you I would imagine if you asked somebody in the 1950s if the Soviet Union would just break up without some ugly, bitter civil war, um, there would be no way that they would be able to believe that. Yeah, I mean, that's but, to- that's totally the the that's the exception, not the rule. I mean, there's been yeah. way, way more breakups that have been bloody than than not. So I'd agree with that. <laughs> Don't get me wrong. There there was, you know, some force that was used, especially in Lithuania. But there it was largely, you know, peaceful compared to what it could have been. Um, but to Russians. Gorbachev could have put them in a better position after the breakup. Um, and to a lot of others, he was just another communist hack. And, you know, the, the reasons why the Soviet Union fell, I mean, I think the, the fundamental causes of the fall of the Soviet Union are, are pretty well understood. Um, you know, the elimination of, of uh, markets led to mass meal, uh, misallocation of the resources through centralized investment. But according to popular history and like you know we have these catalysts that kind of define the fall of the soviet union in the 1980s and you know the big catalyst um that nail the coffin to the soviet union are things like the war in afghanistan which was a disaster you know 15,000 troops died in the war in afghanistan um you know the a lot of people use the uh, the uh, american military buildup under ronald reagan and uh, the Strategic Defense Initiative, and also the Democratic Solidarity Movement in Poland, and uh, Pope John Paul II. So basically, the Soviets were defeated by the Pope, Ronald Reagan, and Rambo. But to go back, just you know, I think these the um, what what I had mentioned before are kind of like the um, the popular culture type, you know, pop history type um, reasons why the Soviet Union fell. And I think there's definitely, or at least what were the catalysts of why they felt in the 1980s, why they fell in the 1980s and not in the 1970s. And I think there's, you know, there's definitely truth to some of these. Um, But I think you need to put the blame on the reforms that Gorbachev made when he came to power. Um, So, you know, his most famous reforms were the... Perestroika, which were the market reforms, and the Glasnost, which were basically um, like government transparency reforms. Um, you know, people like to say the Soviet Union fell because the people started to see the standard of living of people in the West, and that was what caused a lot of um, the internal strife uh, in the satellite states because the propaganda before it had portrayed the West as having an inferior standard of living. And then when people saw their television sets and they saw the standard of living was actually higher than in the Soviet Union, that's what caused a lot of resentment. Um, But I mean, that's what people say. Now, something interesting that Gorbachev did when he first became head of the Communist Party was to enforce a prohibition on on alcohol. So I actually have this, um, this quote from um, Yuri Maltsev, who was actually part of Gorbachev's member, um, he was he was part of uh, Gorbachev's um, senior economics team. So um, this is like an entire article that he had released about the or he had published about the fall of Gorbachev and a lot of his economic um, reforms that kind of ended up um, bad 
or ended up uh, uh, really harm, like, you know, further har harming the Soviet economy. So I'm going to quote him right here. Gorbachev's original theory was that the socialist system was in good working order, but the people, the cogs in the communist machine had taken to laziness and drunkenness and were accumulating dishonest income in violation of socialist ethics. His first reform was, call, was a call for restructuring of people's thinking. The anti-alcohol campaign began right away. Party bosses sternly announced that they didn't want any drunks in their country. Their, enforcer, their enforcers began a concentrated effort to discover anyone with a smell of alcohol on their breath and haul them into the police station. When the police stations became overcrowded, it became routine practice to drive thousands of people about 15 miles out of town and drop them in the cold and dark. Nearly every night, you could see armies of so-called drunks walking miles back to town in the middle of the winter. Over 90% of the liquor stores were closed. The party bosses did not anticipate what happened next. Sugar, flour, aftershave, and window cleaner immediately disappeared from the shelves. Using these products, the production of moonshine increased by about 300% in one year. The predictable result was a heavy loss of life. From 13,000 to 25,000 people died from drinking poisonous homemade alcohol. Many more died standing in lines for five hours to get a little bit of alcohol liquor that was left. Meanwhile, Gorbachev and loyal party bureaucrats who said that dead deserved their fate would get expensive liquor from the West delivered to their homes and offices. Many families would spend up to 75% of their official income on alcohol. But with Gorbachev's campaign, every other household began moonshining. Revenues from alcohol sales, taxed up to 6,000%, were a major source of funding for the central government, generating enough to fund the entire medical budget. The campaign ended when the government realized it was costing too much. The government's budget began to lose 25 to 30 billion rupees every year. Moreover, Gorbachev learned that previous regimes had understood it. It is easier to govern people who are drunk because they withstand humiliation and abuse better. When people are sober, they begin to care about politics and are not nearly as passive. So Gorbachev did not did an about face and ordered a massive increase in alcohol production. And he had the government make it available to be sold everywhere, even toy shops and bakeries. The anti-alcohol campaign did irreparable damage to the economy, with state revenues having been severely curtailed and economic chain reaction set in that hurt every sector. The central bank began to print money, leaving too much money chasing too few goods. Consumers used to get enough to survive from state stores, but now new disposable income saved from not buying alcohol was spent on goods. The end result was a massive shortages. And to correct for the deficit, services were drastically cut, even while Gorbachev restricted private alternatives. So that's interesting. I mean, did you ever read about that before? The, the alcohol prohibition no, I, in the 1980s. I actually didn't know about that. And I think it's pretty funny that, um, like, just the just the idea that you could prevent Russians from drinking sounds absolutely ridiculous. <laughs> you know, no no disrespect to Russians or anything like that, but I don't think they're necessarily known for their, you know, their sobriety. Sobriety. <laughs> you know? So I, I don't know what the fuck was going through their heads when they thought, hey, this might be a good idea. Let's, uh, <laughs> let's, let's go ahead and... Um, stop drinking you know and and it's just kind of ridiculous in general you know from from like a freedom perspective but even more interesting i think yeah as you pointed out in this article is just how much how much like irreparable damage it, it caused to the economy at large uh and and frankly how many people died because they were all making like moonshine and shit it's just so weird it's like 
It feels like the war on drugs here or whatever. You know, it's just stupid. But yeah, it, it just forced everything into black markets. Um, well, what's interesting, though, if you want to compare it to the prohibition that took place in, in the United States, I mean, there was a lot of um, black markets that were created and it also led to just very violent gang wars or mafia wars. Like think about the most most violent or the most uh, violent years for police in this country were the years during prohibition. Like I think that's where you have the most amount of police fatalities is during the years of prohibition. Um, so, I mean, they had something to go by. I mean, they had, um, they had a case study in place with the American prohibition. Um, so it's surprising that they would do that, especially like you said, Russians are not known for their sobriety. Right. And I don't want to paint them as like total drunks or anything like that, but they, they enjoy a culture of it's drinking. Fair. You can right? paint Russians as drunks. You know, like, <laughs> no, I mean, they enjoy a culture of drinking. Right. And, you know, I think that's, you know, it could be negative, but, you know, also it could just be a thing, right? And it, it you know, when when you're governing a people, you have to consider what the culture is like, right? You know, you can't run completely counter to it. Otherwise, it's going to be some problems, you know? So, yeah, there's that. Um, so, um, back to, um, sorry, guys, I don't know how we're going to edit this, but if this is edited and we're having, of course, internet issues, but hopefully we can put something together. So where I was leaving, where I left off with the alcohol reforms. So um, then there was this campaign against dishonest income. So people making money outside the system. So, of course, you know, just talking about the alcohol prohibition, massive black markets were created. Well, there were already massive black markets in the Soviet Union. There was a parallel economy that was going on now in the Soviet Union, um, they cracked down on things like, so some examples would be um, like selling your homegrown vegetables or renting out a room in your home or just any goods that were produced outside the state. Those were what all- What kind of homegrown vegetables, Henry? Market. <laughs> yeah. Selling that so homegrown. <laughs> yeah, the, home, the homegrown vegetables, homesteading. Yeah. That's like how you build an economy. Like we just live in a, a, a plot of land and, you know, we grow some carrots and some potatoes and we just live on the earth. But like people who are, you know, that was considered black market. Um, That's funny. Material or items or goods. Contraband. So now the problem, the reason why these black markets were forming in the Soviet Union is because the official con economy didn't produce enough stuff. So everyone was required to engage in some form of unofficial economic activity. So to make sure that all goods were, uh, you know, um, produced legally, there was some, there was a system of applying certifications to all goods to prove that whatever they were selling was market approved ahead of time. But these certificates, they ended up just being dished out through bribery. So I'm going to read through this article again. Um, the most visible result of the campaign against dishonest income were an increase in bribes and a reshuffling of power in favor of the bureaucratic-led mafia. Soviet bureaucrats were always pleased when new laws were passed because it gave them a chance to extract even more bribes. It was especially helpful when the punishment for violating the law were severe. It provided an opportunity to scare people. People in higher positions could use information to control underlings or even to leapfrog to higher positions. 
So many of Gorbachev's, Gorbachev's peoples used their information to extract bribes and advance their careers. Even after the Chernobyl nuclear accident, a vendor could pay a bureaucrat a fee to have food declared radiation-free. Which is pretty, which is pretty frightening. So this bribery system it sets up the future mafia state of the 1990s. You know, the people who were often going to jail were going to jail because they didn't bribe the right people, or you know, there was some type of personal vendetta against them. So um, government officials they would use the police as intermediaries to have them shake down, um, to have people shake down for money. So. Um, you know, under some guise of some alleged um, indiscretion. So I, he, here's a, you know, a, a, an account from this uh, talking about one of these shakedowns. I once knew a man who was head of a huge multi-hundred thousand ruble furniture manufacturing enterprise. He did his best way. He did his best to stay away from underground activities and on his salary, he could afford it. But he had an enemy in the party, and one day he got a visit from a policeman accusing him of dishonesty and record-keeping. Police work is a highly valued occupation because of the opportunity for receiving bribes. Instead of paying the appropriate bribe, the man maintained his innocence. Then a team of six accountants came into his office and combed through his records over a period of weeks. Finally, they found a 34-ruble mistake, which they, could, they said was a deliberate dishonesty. After a hearing, the state attorney threatened the man with eight years in prison. His own attorney, whom he had to bribe, told him the best solution was to pay 15,000 rubles, divided among the prosecutors, the bureaucrats, and the judge, so the affair could end. The man finally gave in and paid the bribe. Still, the judge punished him for his prior um, intransigence by giving him one year uh, sub suspended sentence. All of this for 34 rubles? Yeah. Well, it was it was just more of a, a of a it sounds like a rounding error. Yeah, it was more of just a, a hit job. Yeah, no, totally. He, someone didn't like him. So they just used that as, as an excuse to shake him down and so ridiculous and, uh, ruin his career in life. Um, now, some one of uh, another uh, initiative from Gorbachev was um, the uh, favor of labor discipline. So he was forcing people to show up on top work harder and they had to put an end to this almost immediately because it was just so antagonizing like imagine if there was like a, a reform in the u.s like you have to go to work harder people who don't work hard and who are lazy are going to be cast you know they're going to be yelled at in public yeah, that'll go, over real, that'll go yeah. over real well i'm jane perlez longtime foreign correspondent and former beijing bureau chief for the new york times I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face Off launches... April 9th. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. 
I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. So, you know, with these reforms not being successful, Gorbachev, you know, he starts to agree to market reforms. And what's interesting is that Gorbachev and and communist officials, and kind of like how China, too, they used the, um, you know, in the case of Gorbachev, they use quotes from Marx and Lenin to support market reforms, to support, you know, a more open economy. And, you know, the first effort in, in creating this new market was to enact these huge budget cuts. So what he did is he fired 60,000 bureaucrats from the central operations of the ministries. But what what happens after this is, is, is kind of ridiculous. Um, they set up this new um, – these mega enterprises to substitute for these ministries. And um, I'm going to quote from this again. A study I did for these new enterprises at the time showed they hired 70, 720,000 people, most of them just fired bureaucrats, but with a generous 35% salary increase. So Gorbachev's cut actually represented a 20% increase in a managerial sector of the Soviet state, which was the, which was exactly the point of the move. So, um, they fired all these people. They were saying that they were doing this to, um, you know, f- for budgetary reasons. They were making these budget cuts, these tough decisions. But the state just created these enterprises and rehired them at higher rates, at higher salaries. Hmm. That's interesting. Yeah. So it defeated the entire purpose of the, of the budget cuts because these right. people were just rehired again. Um, at more money. <laughs> yeah, at, at, a, at a higher, at least the managerial staff was. Mm-hmm. Um, so then they started to allow um, pseudo private ownership. But in fact, you know, these these newly created uh, cooperatives became just, you know, an organized mafia in themselves. And, you know, they, um, you know, their main purpose was was extracting and paying out bribes at you know, an, an, unprint, an unprecedented rate. So uh, I'm going to read from this again. As soon as a person started the business, the fire department would arrive to close everything down and wait for bribes. A person could sue the fire department, but he would have to pay bribe to the judge. In the Soviet Union, people learned that it is better to pay bribes directly. Thus, Gorbachev's new market was an inauthentic one. It piled new regulations and ministries on top of the old and never allowed private property and real buying and selling. A young man from a peasant family I knew, I heard, um, I knew, had heard that market activity was legal and decided to raise a pig to sell in the market. For six months, this hopeful entrepreneur devoted his time and money for caring for it and feeding it, hoping he would earn twice his money back by selling it. Never was a man so happy as when he took the pig to market one morning. 
the night I, that night I found him drunk and depressed. He was not a drinker, so I asked him what happened. When he arrived at the market, a health inspector immediately chopped off a third of the pig. The inspector said he was looking for worms. Then the police came and picked the best part of it and left without saying even thank you. He had to pay bribes to the officials in charge of the markets to get a space to sell what was left, and he had to sell the meat at state prices. By, by the end of the day, he earned barely enough to buy one bottle of vodka, which he had just finished drinking. This was Gorbachev's new market in a nutshell. So, you know, these market reforms were accompanied by just an extremely high level of corruption. And, and it's a trend that, that um, even increases in the 90s after the official fall of the Soviet Union. Um, you know, by 1990, the Soviet industry was pretty much broken down and it was outdated and, you know, it was pretty, it was rusting away. And the Kremlin could no longer maintain the Soviet welfare state, you know, because the Soviet welfare state, it had free medicine, free education, it had holidays, it had vacation spas, it had, um, you know, it had early pensions and, and, you know, it had a lot of military spending as well. Sounds Especially like the war, the war in <laughs> Afghanistan. Yeah. But, you know, really nails the, the, uh, the last or probably the biggest cause, at least to the breakup of the satellite states is just, you know, nationalism. Um, you know, nationalism was what brought down the Soviet empire. So just how nationalism is what divided Yugoslavia into seven countries. Um, Gorbachev let these nations go because Russia just couldn't, it wasn't worth maintaining them anymore. Now, um, this all leads to a, a coup. Oh, in August of 1991, um, eight high-ranking Soviet officials, they placed uh, Gorbachev under house arrest, and they took control of the government for about days. Um, the coup later... But you know, during this time, Gorbachev was putting the final touches on a new union treaty that would give even greater independence to the Soviet states because earlier um, Lithuania had already declared its independence in 1990 and a lot more Soviet states were following suit. So, you know, Gor later, you know, all these Soviet states later on, they, they uh, secede from the Soviet Union. And, you know, this is where it gets into the, the modern conflict, the, the modern uh situation between Russia and Ukraine. As the Soviet Union started to implode, George H.W. Bush, he told Gorbachev during the Malta summit in December of 1989 that the U.S. would not take advantage of the revolutions in, in Eastern Europe to harm Soviet interest. Basically, you know, as everyone was witnessing the fall of the Soviet empire, George H.W. Bush went to Gorbachev and said, hey, we're not going to spike the football. We're not going to meddle in the, the breakup of the country, of the Soviet Union. Um, we're not going to put Russia in a compromised situation. Um, and then in January 31st of 1990, and I have this written down, um, so Hans uh, Dietrich uh, Genscher, so he's a German chancellor who he comes out and says in a speech that an expansion of NATO territory to the east, in other words, closer to the Soviet, closer to the borders of the Soviet Union, was not going to happen. So he said that we're not going to further expand NATO to the east. 
Um, you know, he also played a big role in the breakup of Yugoslavia, but I guess we can talk about it in our follow-up episode. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now, um, you can also add to this. So according to these declassified documents, Secretary of State James Baker, he assured um, Gorbachev that NATO would not expand. Um, he said, he quotes, one inch east of Germany. So this was 30 years ago. And uh, that was Russia's red line 30 years ago, East German. So Germany. <laughs> East Germany. Yeah. So the the red line went from East Germany, the Elbe River, to Ukraine. That's a lot of inches, bro. <laughs> you see how, like, so back in the day, Eastern Europe was everything that was east of Germany. Now Eastern mm -hmm. Europe is just like Russia. It's right. like Russia and Belarus. In parts of in Ukraine. Ukraine. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, there's all these other promises from from NATO and, and the U.S. government that basically we're not we're, we're not going to expand NATO. Now, um, a couple of days ago. I don't know if you saw this, the Russian foreign ministry, it published a statement about, you know, what their demands would be in a draft treaty on European security. So. To sum it up, it's all over like the New York Times and and um, in the Financial Times. Um, so trying to kind of summarize what the demands were, because they were demands or at least um, ultimatums. So um, what the Russian foreign ministry wants is they want no more no more NATO expansion towards Russia's borders. A retraction of 2008 NATO invitation to Ukraine and Georgia. Um, legally binded guarantees that no strike systems would, which could target Moscow, will be deployed in countries next to Russia. No NATO or equivalent U, uh, UK USPI exercises near Russian borders. Um, NATO ships planes to keep NATO ships planes to keep certain distances from Russian borders. Um, I don't know if you saw this in the news, but uh, the Russian government accused the United States of simulating a nuclear strike on Russia a couple of months ago. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I saw that. Um, I don't know how true that is, but there was certainly an accusation that they were simulating some sort of tactical nuclear strike on Russia. Imagine if that what that happened in, in America, like if, yeah, right. if the Chinese or Russia did a simulated nuclear strike on Los Angeles, on Washington, or Washington, on Washington, yeah. or wherever. I mean, them doing a simulated nuclear strike on Ukraine would be enough to. Or on like Kiev would be enough to scare them a bit, yeah. To uh, really heighten the rhetoric from the U.S. national security state. That's right. Um, so in, in this, they also asked for regular military talks and um, no intermediate range nukes in Europe. So um, so far, the U.S. government hasn't it hasn't made any comments on them. Is I haven't seen it yet since we're we're recording this on what is it Sunday the nineteenth? Yeah. So as, as as of right now, I don't think they made a comment on it, um, but NATO has. So Jens uh, Stoltenberg, who's the um, Secretary General of NATO, she came out and flatly just rejected rejected the Russian demands. Um, you know, she came out and said they were unacceptable and also frontline NATO member states in the Baltics, um, like Lithuania, 
you know, they reflexively vetoed any talks with Russia on these matters. Um, You know, the corporate press is kind of analyzing this in the context of the current situation in Ukraine. And, you know, they assume that if the Russians receive um, kind of no satisfaction on their demands, that they're going to use this to justify an invasion, which, you know, I don't think necessarily is the case, but it certainly is, you know, red lines that they're drawing. Um, and what do you think? Well, I, I think it's uh, I think it's a clear picture of what would happen. And I think this this kind of goes into the the stuff that I um, spent the majority of my time doing research on, which is, uh, you know, the current situation that's happening in and around Donbass. Um, maybe now is a good time to transition into that. Yeah, let's do that. Let's transition into um, the current conflict absolutely well, we so, kind of we kind of did already you know the current conflict is summed up by by um nato extending its borders and and, right. and russia's unwillingness to let that happen to ukraine um, right. it's one of the reasons why i think it's in russia's interest or you know at least the government's interest to uh, make ukraine a very hostile place um to to foster um ethnic division mm-hmm. um but also i mean it's legitimate security concern like you know why is why is nato well what is the reason for nato in the first place i mean that's like what their main p- position is but it's interesting though when you talked to vladimir putin and and i think he's just kind of a cool cucumber mm-hmm. they're asking about nato he's like oh we love working with nato like he, it's obviously not true he's just putting a a nice <laughs> face on it but yeah. he's like we love working with nato they're great yeah we have some problems with ukraine ukraine once in a while and with their approachment and a and us and then boxing us in, but we love Nate working with NATO. They're awesome. <laughs> they always they always start off everything with a comment. Like we love our partners to the west. It's a little bit because, of a, a compliment sandwich, right? <laughs> well, just to add a little bit to this, um, I know you have something to say, but yeah. I think that and here's what the experts are saying, or what a lot of analysts are saying. Um, they're saying that right now Russia actually has a lot of leverage. Yeah, and for two primary reasons, um, one reason is being is that we're going in a, going into winter, and right. Western Europe is dependent on on Russian gas. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's the reason why they kind of have leverage over Europe. And the other reason is that I don't know if you've heard about this or you probably read about a lot of a lot of this is that Russia and China have been talking a lot, and there is an alleged military alliance being formed between the two. Well, yeah, they've, that, they've done their first joint military exercise recently, so that makes sense. Yeah. So if you even you can hear this, it, the context of the criticism of U.S. Uh, foreign policy on Ukraine and Russia from, you know, more of the populist right I've, I've actually seen. I've seen I was watching Tucker Carlson the other day and, you know, I agree with his takes on Ukraine, how the U.S. shouldn't expand the borders of NATO and it's not worth getting into an escalation with Russia over Ukraine. But then he'll say, you know, the reason why we shouldn't do this is because we shouldn't be pushing Russia and China into an alliance because China is our true enemy. So the, the first half I agree with, the second half I'm like, China's, you know, in my mind, China's more of an economic competitor than a military competitor. But um, it has Washington kind of freaking out because they're like, okay, well, 
what if what if Russia invades Ukraine and what if China invades Taiwan at the same time? Because that right. seems to be what at least what they're where their heads at. Like, well, that's oh, a no, World War like, Three scenario right there. Yeah. So, like, what so. if what if they both decided to annex territory at the same exact time? We couldn't respond to that. Mm-hmm. I don't think that's going to happen in the, in the slightest. I, I think I think I don't uh, think so either. either situation will happen. But well, um, I don't think I don't think China is going to invade Taiwan. And, and if they do, I don't think it's going to go down the way that they want it to. Uh, I do actually think that Russia will uh, invade again in the Donbass. Um, but uh, kind of, let, let, let's just kind of get to it because there's there's a really hot topic right now. You know, all you need to do is turn on literally any news channel or pop open any, you know, of your favorite major mainstream media outlet. And you'll see at least one article, probably many, about how Russia's got 90,000 troops and heavy weaponry and logistics stationed along the border in the Donbass region. And uh, what, what I think I hope to do today is answer three main questions. Uh, and those questions are, why is Russia amassing troops in the region? Uh, how does the Donbass region's ethnic makeup play a role in this conflict? And how does what happened in Crimea help us understand what could happen in Donbass? And I want to do things a little bit differently uh, rather than, you know, state my case and then make my point. Uh, I want to just tell you what I think right now, right off the bat. Okay. And then I'll explain to you later. Um, Okay. So there actually won't be an invasion per se of the Donbass region of Ukraine by Russia. Not not like the way that you think. And, and let's just for people who don't know, the Donbass region is like a you know a heavy Russian ethnic part of Ukraine. Yep. That and a we'll, lot of we'll definitely get into that for sure. All right, we'll we'll get into it. But um, all right, go back. Sorry to yeah, interrupt so you. The, no worries. That's fine. Uh, there there's no there's not going to be an invasion like how you think there or like how the media is portraying that there will be an invasion. And this but is I think, the, how the media is portraying it is that there's a bunch of uh, the Russian military is like waiting on the other side of the border ready to do like a bayonet charge across ukraine right. and they kind or of are like a, in, in a some ways you, tank yeah you could kind of make that point because there literally is a giant force right outside on the doorstep like that that part isn't in dispute what what they intend to do with that military is is in my opinion different i think and this is my take here right i could be totally wrong so we'll find out eventually i guess and we'll come back to it uh, but I think Donbass is going to get annexed by Russia through a referendum, much like Crimea was in 2014. And I think it will overwhelmingly go in favor of annexation, which will give Russia some cover for the blowback. Uh, and when it gets annexed, I think that part is up in the air. It could happen over the winter. It could happen in the spring. I don't know. Right. But what I feel very confident in is that it's going to happen. I think Russian troops on the border are just there as tripwire to prevent NATO and Ukraine from messing around with these annexation plans. Uh, I think there will be continued fighting among the separatists in Donbass and in Ukraine, and it will be sponsored on both sides by proxy, by Russia and the U.S. respectively, uh, but not directly. Uh, and I think they'll still have plenty of you know opportunities for ceasefires, which will be agreed to and then broken several times before the eventual annexation. Uh, I think Donbass ethnic ties 
to Russia will definitely play a part in this shift. As you pointed out, they are you know, very Russian in culture and in ethnicity and, in, and linguistically. However, I think Russia will manufacture and arguably has already been manufacturing the appropriate conditions by which an annexation can occur. I think Russia is going to get hit with more economic sanctions by the U.S. and others. I think the EU is going to pussy out on similar sanctions because they need Russian gas. Uh, and I think Ukraine will still not be joining NATO anytime soon, but you'll hear a lot about it and increased support for it across the Western media. And that's what I think is going to happen. Well, it's interesting because Biden came out and said that it's not worth fighting over Ukraine. Like yeah, he well, just said it. Biden's also strangely on the right side of the of the political spectrum for this shit here. You know, uh, I think he's he's doing this particular part right. And everyone's beating him with a stick like, well, how could you? Why would you leave Ukraine out like this? You know, it's just it's weird when when they're actually like speaking soberly, you know, and well, people attack him from the I left. Don't, I don't. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I don't think that Biden wants to deal. Biden wants to be a domestic president. He doesn't want right. to deal with these foreign policies, this right. foreign policy stuff. And nobody wants um, to get into this shit. As many, here's the thing with the Biden presidency or just Biden in general. He has been wrong so much. <laughs> yeah. He's made every mistake that you possibly could make in his long political career mm-hmm. that he's been burnt so much by experience that he understands that this is a lose lose situation. Yep. And I think he made a similar type of concession in Afghanistan. That's right. Um, where when he was actually moving forward with the withdrawal plans, the corporate press was bloodthirsty, you know, right. like just like they're kind of bloodthirsty with Ukraine That's and right. Russia. Mm-hmm. They were they were attacking him and they were saying, hey, like, how do you do Like, how can you leave the Afghan, you know, these uh, poor women in, tal- in the, tal- the hands of the Taliban? And he's like, no, we're, we're leaving. Um, now, I mean, the the plans to execute it are a different story, but he did kind of stay uh, on gear as far as withdrawing. Yeah. And he was kind of like that with Ukraine as well, because mm-hmm. usually presidents will come out and give some vague promise. Like, you know, Blinken was saying, giving these vague promises about the security of Ukraine. Um, you know, ironclad is the word, is the buzzword. And I'm pretty right. sure that the word ironclad was used to um, talk about Taiwan as well, <laughs> where Blinken came out. as like, our commitment to Taiwan is ironclad. Right. He said the same thing. Our commitment to Ukraine is ironclad. But in reality, it's it's. I don't think it is. I think that um, it's more just like, all it's right, situational. you guys did it. Mm-hmm. We're going to give some economic sanctions to hold space. And then, but meanwhile... You know, um, the corporate press is going to attack them from the right and be like, oh, you guys can't. You are just destroying American credibility. Right? Yeah. Um, yeah. That will be that will be the uh, they'll get attacked the from every, every way. But I, they'll I get feel attacked from anything, they'll get attacked from like liberal internationalists um, <laughs> yeah. who are who are invested in, in the political situation there. He'll mm-hmm. be attacked from the um, kind of the neoconservative or the corporate or the mainstream right. Um if you listen to Sean Hannity, it's it's so interesting listening to Sean Hannity and Tucker Carlson back to back mm-hmm. because they have completely different narratives on Ukraine. Like Tucker's narrative is like, this is stupid, um, which I think is the right one. And then Sean Hannity's narrative it will be like, oh, Biden is rejecting um, is is uh, is weak and the world sees it as weak because of the Democrats. Basically, the same talking points from the Bush era. 
which is just it's very interesting to watch this as a case study of like the two splits of the American right going on right now. Yeah. Um, but I'm going too much off course. Uh, let That's me ask right. you this. What do you think the motivation of Russia annexing Donbass would be? Because what I've been reading is that Donbass is not really a place that would give Russia that much of a strategic advantage because a lot, the Donbass doesn't like, unlike Crimea, Crimea has the base. Um, and the main reason why Russia annexed Crimea or there was an interest in, in, um, there was always an interest in annexing Crimea or, or bringing that back to Russia is because Crimea had been part of Russia for most of its history. That's why Crimea's population was mostly Russian speaking. I think about 80% of the population was Russian speaking. They had voted to be the, I mean, they were, uh, Crimea was transferred from the, from Russia to Ukraine, uh, by Khrushchev. Um, and it was largely a political move because, uh, he was Ukrainian. Um, so there was this always this kind of feeling in Russia that, hey, this this was actually stolen from us for, for you know, these political reasons that this was always part of Russia. Uh, this is part of Russia since the age of Catherine the Great. So and, you know, also, I mean, not to mention just the the fact that that's where Russia's only warm water port was. Um, you know, there are other ports in the Baltics. They freeze during the winter. Uh, so this was an actual absolute necessity if Russia lost this base, they would go back to like not even a regional power anymore. They would go back to a third world country. So for the Russian state to survive, that was an absolute um, must to take back Crimea and to uh, to uh, to keep that Navy base. Now, the Donbass, on the other hand, what I've been reading is that there's really not that much of a um, reason or. Um, there's a lot of there's a lot of negative or negatives or cons to taking back uh, or taking Donbass because there's a um, aging population there that would have to get on the pension plan. Um, there are um, it, it would it would bog the Russians down. Um, those are the main reasons why uh, Moscow or the Kremlin wouldn't want it. But I'm curious to to hear what you've been reading and, and what you've been saying, if you think that they are or they, they that they would uh try to annex the Donbass. Look, I think you said a lot of really good things. And, and I also think that some of the, the points that you pointed out are are valid. Also, some of the points that you pointed out are just, you know, talking points that, you know, Russians or, you know, Russian um, people who are uh, favorable to Russia uh, would say. I think the primary reason why I believe that they'll invade Donbass is because the patterns that they've laid uh, in other places like uh, Crimea, very particularly, and uh, in in a in a very similar manner, also South Ossetia in Georgia, uh, which is to this day still occupied. Um, so, I, I think first I want to answer some of those questions that I brought up first. I think a lot. Of, I, I I took a stab out there and I said exactly what I think first, uh, but I want to tell you why. Um, so the, the first question I wanted to answer is like, why is Russia amassing troops in the region? And this has to do directly with your question here, you know, on, on why would they want to take Donbass? And I think officially Putin is claiming that this is nothing but a snap military exercise, whatever that means. Um, and I think you could probably guess that such an exercise has a cost associated with it, right? You don't just move shit tons of like human beings and, and equipment across the country and stack them all in one place. And it's, it's not free, right? So when you consider... Russia's current economical and 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 political 
climate in Russia. Like there, there has to be a bet, like a really good reason for them to want to do this. Otherwise, this exercise is an epic waste of time and money uh, for the Russian Federation. So just that alone, you don't move that much troops to one area. You know, like it's just it's incredibly costly. It would be bad. It would be really bad politically for them. You know, uh, so you have to have there has to be a reason. Right. And I think there's a really good reason, or at least there appears to be a good reason. Uh, but understand that reason you have to you have to get, you know, two things. And the first thing is the ongoing conflict of the separatist groups in the Donbass region of Ukraine against the federal government of Ukraine. And the second thing, which we kind of already talked about a little bit, is how Russia responds to NATO expansion, which I think is super important to this. So I want to first talk about the conflict in Donbass, just to give some context. Um, you know, we have to go back to 2014 to, to give some background on this, but uh, we've already done a few episodes on Ukraine and some of the issues related to this in the past. So you can listen to those for like in-depth detail, but here's a quick recap of what went down. So there's two major events uh, in 2014 that basically sparked a war in the Donbass region of Ukraine. The first one was the 2014 Ukrainian revolution, and the second one was the Euromaiden uh, movement. And this was all going on at the same time, by the way, as the, the Crimean independence referendum, uh, which they went when they officially annexed uh, Crimea to Russia. So needless to say, a lot of shit was going down in East and South Ukraine at this time. And there was a lot of protests that popped up after these events uh, in the Donetsk and Luhansk areas. And together, Donetsk and Luhansk form the, the region that we call Donbass. So I, I have a quick I have a quick interruption. Yeah. So I just, Hit you know, all, all these hawks that are like, man, we need to intervene on behalf of Ukraine. Uh huh. Can one of them point out these places on the map? You think? <laughs> no, <laughs> no, none of them. No, not no. ask any ask any American. If they are able to point these regions out on a map and no, I would say maybe one and 10,000 Americans could probably, I don't even think that's way too high. One in 10,000, probably one in a hundred thousand people can point know, these places on a map in this country. Maybe. maybe. I mean, I certainly wouldn't know about it if I wasn't such a nerd about like geopolitics. But... I wouldn't, we wouldn't know about this if we didn't do this podcast. You know right. what I mean? Like, yeah. you know, we wouldn't, I wouldn't know about this if I was going about, like, there's no reason to, <laughs> you right. know, no, no there's no. no reason to. So just like asking it, and just to go back on, you know, Russian talking points that I spew, um, this is not this is not a Russian talking point. This is like, you know, in the in terms of American interest, how is it in America's interest to to uh, go to war over these areas in Ukraine? And mm -hmm. most people don't even know where they are or what they are or what's the ethnic composition or really any of the context on it. Like, right. how is that American interest? Right. Um, but I guess th that's my uh, that's your that's my talking point. <laughs> that's my hot take. I mean, right. it's not really a hot, a hot take. Just like go to a random person in, in this country and say, hey, point out. I mean, all right, there's a if you listen to if you watch like these videos online of people being interviewed and asked really easy questions where they can't answer them. Mm -hmm. I saw one of these in America. It was in, I think, Los Angeles. Go figure. The people there are dumb um, <laughs> where they were point. They had a map of the world and they're like, point out a country. Name a country. Name a country. And they couldn't answer it. Like, what? A country? Name a country. 
It feels really good to be productive, but a lot of the time it's easier said than done, especially when you need to make time to learn about productivity so you can actually, you know, be productive. But you can start your morning off right and be ready to get stuff done in just a few minutes with the Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day podcast. You'll hear advice on everything from how to build confidence to how to get the best night's sleep. New episodes drop every weekday, and each one is five minutes or less, so you only have to listen a little to get a lot more out of your weekdays. Listen and subscribe to Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts. That's Inc. Productivity Tip of the Day wherever you get your podcasts. We all know how important it is to keep your eye on the money and not just your own. To follow trends, track financial situations, follow gains and losses, check out the Yahoo Finance podcast. Every day, we'll give you a quick overview of the latest market and financial news that you need to know. You'll be able to hear about the biggest headlines in the business world in three minutes or less, right after markets close. It's perfect to listen to while you make another cup of coffee or work out a new budget. Check it out now. Listen to Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. That's Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. I mean, like, look, I, I'm not... Follow me, name a country. Name a country. I know these are edited to make it look really bad, and they're picking out the, they're, they're picking out the dumbest people, but, I mean, come on. Any country at all? It was a map. It was like a big map. Name a country. Just point out a map, country and just name a country. And maybe these people are under pressure and they, their brains just froze up. I think that's probably... That could be the case. Mm-hmm. Um, but... It's uh, imagine asking our population to name like a region under a civil conflict. Uh, it would be impossible. Right. But there's my hot take. Um, like, please go back to you know what you were saying. <laughs> no worries. Anyway, we were talking about this region that no one in the United States could probably ever point out on a map. And they're having these protests popping up, right? And those protests were primarily because the Don- the people in Donbass had these collective issues with the new Ukrainian government. I'm not going to go t- into too much detail. We've done episodes on this in the past. Uh, it, and you- I'll point out one of the major ones. So the new government was seen as anti. The, so the, two, the, the government that came to power in 2014 um, in a alleged coup was seen as very anti-Russian and they outlawed the Russian language. Right. Um, so that was probably one of the major uh, gripes. Um, the previous president who was overthrown was um, seen as more Russian friendly. And, um, you know, he withdrew from an EU deal in favor of a Russian deal. Um, but the people in, in the east of Ukraine thought that the new government was going to be chauvinistic against the Russians. Um, just to kind of sum it up why they were having uh, collective issues with the Ukrainian government and why they're kind of let what, what led to a separatist movement. Right, right, totally. So, so you know, there, there's some shit going on back there, right? They have reason to protest is, is why I wanted to point that out. But quickly after it started, that what, what started as a protest became a fully armed conflict. And the result of this conflict... Uh, initiated the declaration of two new separatist republics. So there's the Donetsk People's Republic, the DPR, and the Luhansk uh, People's Republic, or the LPR. And, you know, during this uh, period, Russia went with a hybrid approach to the conflict. 
initially. So they used a, um, a combination of things like disinformation campaigns. They also introduced a whole lot of paramilitary and regular Russian military support, uh, you know, for these people. And and according to the Ukrainian government, so take this with a grain of salt, uh, at the height of the conflict, Russian paramilitaries made up between, and li listen to this range, 15 to 80% of the combatants, which I think is hilarious because you can't give a range that's almost a full 100%, you know? Uh, oh yeah, there's between zero and 100% Russian military in this, <laughs> you know? It's just, it's just stupid. Um, but honestly, even if it, even if they're on the high end, right, and it was 80% combatants that were Russian paramilitary, I, I don't think that's a ding against Russia because Ukraine's military sucks and they also had to use mercenaries too. So, you know, no, nobody's playing with their regular, you know, uh, team members. They're, they're on second and third string quarterbacks here, you know? Um, anyway, so Ukraine responds to this involvement and to this, uh, uh, creation of these new republics, and they uh, launch a massive counteroffensive against pro-Russian forces from 2014 into, until about 2018, and and arguably it's still kind of going on uh, in pockets here and there. Uh, by the late summer of 2014, though, Ukraine had been able to take back a ton of the territory that they initially lost, and they were super close to controlling the border of Russia. But that's when Russia ditched its hybrid approach and just straight up invaded Donbass. Uh, and they called it a humanitarian convoy. I'm using air quotes here. Uh, and that they were, quote, forced to defend the Russian-speaking communities in Donbass. Um, I think what's ironic about this is that this humanitarian convoy included heavy art artillery and major shelling, which is super humane. Um, so the big criticism here against Russia and this humanitarian justification uh, of its involvement in the conflict is that it's that their their offensive extended beyond the areas that were originally controlled by these pro-Russian forces. So as an example, uh, there was border crossings by Russian troops that happened in the southeastern part of Donetsk near, uh, and I'm going to I'm going to ruin this, Novozovsk, Novozovsk, southeast Donetsk. Uh, and that wasn't originally controlled by the pro-Russian forces. So, you know, the idea is if they were truly defending just these like separatist groups and the Russian speaking peoples, what are they doing in the other region, in the other areas? Um, but this is where you start hearing the term stealth invasion get thrown around. Do you remember that term? A lot of Democrats were using this during the time. A lot of, a lot of mainstream media was saying that Russia was stealth invading. Do you remember that? Yeah. Stealth invasion. I remember that term. Right. So, but I mean, it's, it's, it's so like eye rolly, but at the same time, it does have some merits, you know, when you, when you consider what actually happened. Um, but as a result of that invasion, like no matter which way you slice it, the, the DPR and the LPR got back a lot of the territory that they lost to that Ukrainian offensive. And we're, you know, kind of going back and forth here. So what, what ends up happening is, is we get to a point where we where third parties, you know, different countries are attempting to stop the violence because it was very bloody and very violent. Uh, and then that brings us to the Minsk Protocol. So the Minsk Protocol, it's called Minsk Protocol because they had it in Minsk, Belarus. Um, but it was brokered by a couple people. So there was the Trilateral Contact Group on Ukraine, which was consisted of Ukraine, Russia, and the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, or the OSCE. And then there was mediation by uh, leaders in France and Germany. 
And so the agreement was signed by the Trilateral Contact Group and the heads of the Donetsk People's Republic and the Luhansk People's Republic without recognizing any official status of those two separatist groups. Now, it obviously aimed to implement an immediate ceasefire, but that stopped, that failed, uh, and there was more fighting. And then they had to go back to the drawing board again, and then they did Minsk II. Minsk II also failed, uh, but everyone agrees that that one should be the basis for any future resolutions to this particular conflict. Uh, just to give you some context here, since the start of that conflict, there's been 29 ceasefires, but none of them have actually done any good and stopped the violence. So that's kind of like the background of the of the conflict itself. And another one of these questions that I wanted to answer, uh, mostly for myself, is like how the ethnic component you know, comes in, because as you pointed out, and we will talk uh, in some detail about Crimea today, but you were saying that, you know, in, in the Crimean situation, you know, that they, they were ethnically Russian, or at least culturally or similar, they, you know, historically Russian, so on and so forth. So like, what, what does the ethnic makeup of the Donbass people have to do with this particular conflict? And, and it does have something to do with it. Um, and we've talked in prior episodes about the idea that there are two Ukraines, so there's East Ukraine and West Ukraine, with that primary distinction being uh, linguistic, and there's obviously some slight cultural differences there as well. Uh, but at the same time, we've also talked about the idea of a triune people, uh, and it's an idea that Ukrainians, Belarusians, and Russians are all the same kind of people. They're all the same thing. And this is actually something that Putin is a big proponent of, actually. So the triune people argument kind of hurts Putin's stance of you know, defending Russian people uh, in Ukraine, because if they're all the same triune people, where is the strong delineation between Russians in Ukraine coming from? They're all the same thing. So according to the triune argument, Russia would be defending triune people in Ukraine from triune people in Ukraine, which doesn't really make a ton so of sense. You're, you know? Yeah, you're talking about Eastern Slavics. Basically, you know, the right. three the three types of Slavs, uh, you know, Western, Eastern, Southern Slavs. Eastern Slavs are the one. Southern Slavs are the ones in the Balkans. Mm-hmm. Western Slavs are the ones like in Czechoslovakia, well, Czechoslovakia, who am I, Dick Cheney, in mm-hmm. the Czech Republic, um, mm-hmm. um, Poland, those areas in, right. in the East. Um, and these are all Ukrainians, Slavs. Russians, and Belarusians mm-hmm. are, are Eastern Slavs. And, you know, the, the I guess the foundations of the Russian state or the first um, – I don't want to say Russian state, but Slavic state mm-hmm. that, you know, eventually kind of morphs into um, other Slavic states such as Russia um, are uh, the Kievan Rus. Right. Which starts in Kiev, which right. starts on the Dnieper River. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, that what well, we actually did an episode on that as well. We did. Yeah, we did. And, and you know, the, I, I think it's just weird that on the one hand, Putin and Russia on the whole thinks that they are both all the same people, but also, you know, conveniently uses the argument that they need to defend Russians in Ukraine as if there's something different, you know? So I don't think that that you know, those arguments hold water. And I'm going to talk about this a lot, and I have talked about this a lot. Borders are definitely bullshit all over the world, especially in places like these, but I think what is real is geopolitical interests, and it it doesn't strike me at all um, that Russia 
their initial invasion of the Donbass was a defensive Russian people, but rather that it was a defensive Russian geopolitical interests. Which brings me to my next question that you asked me, which is why would Russia want to, you know, annex Donbass or, you know, invade Donbass? I think the first obvious point, you know, uh, that you didn't really bring up here is that Donbass is dominated by heavy industry, so coal mining and metallurgy. The region takes its name from an abbreviation of the term Donetsk Coal Basin. So that's where Donbass comes from, right? And so Donbass is actually one of the largest coal reserves in Ukraine, and they have estimated reserves of 6 billion tons of coal. So there's that, right? Um, that is a valuable, uh, albeit antiquated, source of energy, right? Uh, so there's already a vested interest there, at least a, 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 an economic one. But more importantly, I think there's the interests of the NATO expansion to contend with. And I think this is more of, uh, of a Russian interest here in wanting to take Donbass. So Ukraine has been trying to get into NATO for a while now, since at least 2008, when they got that initial invitation. And there's definitely something to say about the motivations for it to join. And you know, it's not purely because Ukraine like hates Russia and wants to NATO to back it up. You know, officially, NATO claims that that 2008 decision to begin the process of Ukraine joining NATO was a part of the country's right to self-determination on foreign policy, right? So their argument is Ukraine is their own thing. They're a big boy. They can make their own foreign policy decisions and nobody else in the world can tell them that they can't. Hint, hint, Russia, right? Um, but popular support in Ukraine for joining NATO at that time was relatively low. It was actually pretty low. And it wasn't until after the conflicts against Russia in 2014 that that number started going up, like the, the number of Ukrainians that actually wanted to join NATO, right? Unofficially, though, it's not a secret that it's part of this strategic importance of NATO to expand closer and closer to Russia to contain it. It's not what the German dude said, right? He, you know, it's not, we won't expand an inch in past Germany, which clearly they've taken very, very many inches since that statement. It's in NATO's advantage to gain more territory closer to Russia, to box Russia in. That's, that's why they've, that's why they've expanded as much as they have. That's why in 2008, they offered Ukraine and Georgia to join, um, to join NATO. Like they're not asking fucking I don't know, name a country that's not in NATO, like fucking Paraguay. They're not asking Paraguay to join NATO. Or is Paraguay in NATO? I'm not even sure. I don't think so. You know, they're, they're not asking, like, name a name a random country that's nowhere near Russia. <laughs> you know? They might they're be, not a, a, I don't know, like a NATO-friendly country or whatever. I, I'm not actually sure either. Um, yeah, it doesn't really matter, though. You get what I'm saying, though, right? South, in South America, it doesn't really matter. You get matter. what I'm saying. They're not expanding away from Russia. They're expanding towards Russia, right? So unofficially... You know, there is a strong evidence that's out there. It's just clear that NATO wants to expand closer to Russia because it's of strategic importance. So it's not hard to imagine that there is some level of outside influence on the part of NATO on Ukraine's motivation to join. And therefore, you know, you have to think like what came first? Ukraine, did Ukraine want to join NATO or did NATO, you know, try to convince Ukraine to join? It's a bit of a chicken and the egg, but what's important to note is that that mutual interest of both Ukraine and NATO for NATO expansion is there. But Ukraine joining NATO is a serious threat to Russia, and that can come with major escalations. And you can make the argument that 
you know, NATO expansionism is what causes these conflicts. And we certainly have before. And I think you've probably even pointed out how Tucker Carlson is saying it too. You know, don't box them in. Don't press them towards China, our real enemy, right? Russian annexation of Crimea, as you pointed out, and, and the potential future annexation of Donbass comes at the very least as an indirect result of NATO expansion because it represents a geopolitical mechanism for Russia to counter NATO expansion with expansion of their own. So for so, my reading, go ahead, go ahead. Uh, go on. I'll, 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 fin I'll finish my comment. point here and then you can jump yeah, in. Yeah, if you finish your point. From my reading, I think that this liberation of Donbass is more of a way to gain a geopolitical influence over strategic resources, remember those coal mines, and to counter NATO expansion, much how Crimea's uh, annexation was a way to gain permanent access to the Black Sea. Go ahead. <laughs> well, so, I mean, I, I agree with you in the sense of like, yeah, they're obviously trying to curtail NATO expansion, but... I don't think they necessarily need to to uh, annex Donbass to um, to curtail NATO expansion. I think it's actually better for them if they don't, because if Donbass just becomes part of Russia, they're still facing the same problem. There's no buffer states between Russia and NATO, and I think they'd rather have Ukraine as a as a buffer, um, because you know one of the pre-existing, I think one of the NATO. Um, requirements is that you can't have pre in a pre-existing border dispute which which ukraine definitely has um so we we touched on this but you know one of the big problems is that you know there's artificial borders um mm -hmm. you know the end of the cold war it, it left a lot of problems for russia and ukraine a lot of very complex problems and the main the main problem is that ukraine doesn't really represent any type of real nation it's 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 a lot like an african state or a Middle Eastern state, um, it, it was, and when I say African state, like a, an African state that was created by European col colonists, um, but, you know, the, the the borders of Ukraine were created by, um, by Lenin and Stalin, you know, um, what they would do is that they would export Russian speakers to other Soviet republics in order to, uh, you know, quash any type of national sentiment. Right. So, I mean, that's why there's Russian speakers spread out in, in those regions in the first place. Um, but I think it's more beneficial for them to not annex them, to not annex uh, the Donbass and to rather have this kind of perpetual conflict in the middle of the country uh, as, a, as their buffer rather than to outright just annex the territory. I, I know you had mentioned that the um, there's interest in, in taking the um, – in, um, in absorbing the industry there, but, um, you know, maybe, maybe you're right about that, but I think it, as far as to curtail NATO expansion, it's, I think it would probably be better to, to not annex Donbass and just have Ukraine more or less divided, or even have like a Donbass that is separated, um, it has its own autonomy from Moscow, um, or be more of like, kind of like a client state to Moscow rather than to actually be official part of the Russian borders. Well, I mean, I hear what you're saying, and, and there's truth to that, but I think that the the result of not annexing Donbass would mean that they would need to perpetually support Donbass militarily and be in this perpetual proxy war with with Ukraine about it. You know, right now, if, if you look at Crimea, like, Ukraine's not fighting in Crimea right now. 
No, they're Crimea. not. Crimea is fully Russia now, right? Everyone shut up about Crimea for a while. So, yeah, they could leave it, and maybe it would be beneficial for them to keep Ukraine weak by having a perpetual state of chaos, but it would mean that they're in that for the long haul because it's right on their border, and, you know, the whole we got to protect Russians thing, which is not real. But you get what I'm saying here. And yeah, I get what you're saying. Maybe maybe more more to the point, I think that the reason, you know, I could be totally off on the reason why um, Russia would want to annex Donbass. But at least I can see the pattern. And I think there's already a pattern for the annexation. And that has to do with Crimea. And how Crimea played out. But Crimea voted to join Russia all by themselves, right? Like, how could we say that, you know, Russia had some kind of special plan to steal Crimea? <laughs> you know, here's, a, here's an interesting uh, survey um, that was carried out by uh, the Pew Research Center in April 2014. Uh, and it said that the majority of Crimean residents said the referendum was free and fair. So it was 91%. And that the government, Kiev, ought to recognize the results of the vote. And that was 88%. So just pretty strong results in favor of the idea that the referendum in Crimea was legit. And that there was nothing fishy or illegal about the Russian annexation of the region, right? So maybe we should take a look at that referendum and just learn a little bit more about it. So that the referendum included two questions. So the first question was, do you support the reunification of Crimea with Russia with all the rights of the federal subject of the Russian Federation. That's a mouthful, but basically, do you want to join Russia? Choice two, do you support the restoration of the Constitution of the Republic of Crimea in 1992 and the status of Crimea as part of, as part of Ukraine? And so people of Crimea and the city of Sevastopol, respectively, they treated them separately. Uh, they uh, were presented these two options, and here's how the, sh the votes shook out. So in Crimea, the, the Autonomous Republic, 96.77% uh, said join the Russia, join Russia. 2.51% said uh, go back to 1992 constitution. And then there was like almost a 1% invalid vote and there was an overall 83% voter turnout. In Sevastopol, it's pretty similar. So join Russia was 95.6%. Restore 92 constitution was 3.37%. Invalid votes was just a little over 1%. Voter turnout was 89%. Seems like a landslide win for joining Russia, right? Well, and it does. It it absolutely does, right? But for whatever reason, I've, I've never been able to... It's never sat well with me. And I didn't understand why until I started looking into it. And I think initially what doesn't sit well with me is how one-sided the results are. You know, we've joked on the show a lot about how dictators around the world enjoy election wins in the high 80s and 90s. And it's easy to make fun of it because of how clearly bullshit those results are. And that's not necessarily the case here, but maybe it's Luk a... Lukashenko won, what, 70% or 80% in the last election? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And like Assad won with a ridiculous number too. Uh, Assad so... won with like 98% of exactly. his last election. Exactly. And it's just like kind of a joke, right? And, and it might just be a result of my, like, cynicism, <laughs> but I generally find it hard to believe that millions of people can agree so strongly 
with such a high percentage about almost anything, right? And and that skepticism rises for me when when you consider that those pe- what those people are trying to agree on are huge geopolitical changes that involve major regional powers. Now, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna make this a big conspiracy, right? I'm not gonna peddle the idea that you know that that the people of Crimea were somehow like coerced into voting for joining Russia because they had the you know the military base there. And and I'm also not going to go down the fake votes rabbit hole, even though there was some legit issues. Um, I I definitely think there are some things to think about for this referendum that that personally make me feel uncomfortable. And I think the one big criticism of the referendum was the choices themselves. So the the referendum's choices didn't include keeping the status quo of the 1998 Constitution of the Autonomous Republic of Crimea. So basically, a semi-autonomous state of Ukraine. They offered the 92 Constitution of Crimea. And that's it's, it's a slightly different choice, but it's different because the 92 Constitution didn't initially affirm Crimea as part of Ukraine. They had to do that in amendment like a day later. It's a small detail, but legally speaking, and a lot of people that are smarter than me have pointed out that both choices could have resulted in a Crimean independence from Ukraine anyway, right? Uh, and, and this includes commentators from New York Times, the Kiev Post, Fox News, many others, right? But let's pull this back a bit because let's say let's say we can ignore that for a second, right? We ignore the criticism for a moment that the choices were crafted in a sneaky way so that everyone has to choose to go to Russia, right? And, you know, we'd also have to look past, you know, that, that like gut feeling that how the fuck could 95% of people all agree to join Russia, right? That seems weird, but we'd have to ignore it. Um, we'd have to we'd have to agree on all those points. There's still an issue that doesn't get resolved in this situation, and that's Ukraine's right to self determination. So, organizing and holding the referendum on Crimea's annexation was was illegal um, under the Constitution of Ukraine, according to the ninety six Constitution of Crimea of Ukraine. Any of the territorial changes in Ukraine can only be approved by a referendum where all of the citizens of Ukraine are allowed to vote, which means that every Ukrainian, not just the Crimeans, would have to vote on Crimea leaving. Does that sound kind of familiar to you? It does. Right. So It sounds like Yugoslavia. Ex- exactly. So we talked about this sounds exact like, sounds like issue. The... So in Yugoslavia... Yeah, go on. Bring up the point. I know exactly where you're going at. It sounds exactly like the breakup of Yugoslavia in the early 90s. 100%, right? So Yugoslavia is a thing. It's a country comprised of several regions and peoples in the Balkans. There were many ethnic groups there, many factions. You know, there were tensions among those groups, but in large part, the people of Yugoslavia and the international community, specifically the U.S., wanted Yugoslavia to continue to be a thing. And then shit goes a bit sideways after the Soviet Union collapses. International opinions change. Ethnic tensions rise. You know, yada, yada. Breakup of the Yugoslavian, you know, uh, the Balkans begins. And particularly in Bosnia, the minority Bosniak group, which wished to, you know, skip out from the greater Yugoslavia because they feared being oppressed by the majority Serbians. And, you know, the Bosnian and many other regions hold their own referendums and break off from Yugoslavia. And this was accelerated by the fact that the U.S. and the international community was placing sanctions on Yugoslavia and was giving aid to breakaway states, right? And this ran counter to the 1974 Yugoslavian constitution, which did allow for countries to break off, but only if all of Yugoslavia can vote on it and agree to it. 
So the way I'm looking at Crimea right now is super similar to the way that I read into the breakup of the Balkans. Even if the referendum was legitimate, you still have to ask, what kind of precedent does this set? Some, some non-Crimean examples. Can Hong Kong break away from China with a referendum all by themselves? Shouldn't we already recognize Taiwan as a country because they've already declared their independence? Can the Kurds break away from Syria, Iraq, Turkey, and make Rojava? Can Palestine end Israeli occupation with, a rec- with just like a referendum? Can Puerto Rico gain its independence through such a re- referendum? Can Texas yeah. or, or California secede with a referendum? I can go on and on with these examples. Maybe. Yeah, I, I get what you're saying. There's no, there's no, um, there's a large gray area and there's no consistency or precedent when it comes to creating new nation states. And right. there's no precedent set by international law. Um, there is nothing in international law that really says, you know, who or what, you know, it says stuff about self-determination and stuff like that. But mm-hmm. there's no like firm um, degree or uh, measurement of like how much self-determination, like, w- how much will creates your own state. You know what I mean? You understand right. what I'm saying right now? Like there's no Absolutely. measure like it takes this much will of self-determination and then you make the state like you have a state. That's um, right. It's and- on a case by case basis and it's usually just decided by you know, your regional neighbors of what they're willing to tolerate. A hundred percent. And obviously I have empathy for people, right? And I personally think that, again, these national borders are largely bullshit and they're drawn without yeah. respect to the people that are and living And that goes without them. saying, you yeah. know, like that goes without saying, I think for even most Americans, like I think most yeah. Americans are under the opinion that, hey, like anyone has the right to self-determination. Like if you want to, if you want to break up and become your own country and govern your own way or if you feel like you're being marginalized then you have the right to create mm-hmm. your own country if yeah. there's a will but and, I guess and some problem- groups legit have very legit reasons to want to break away right and it's worth listening to them about it but the thing that's that's like kind of hard about this is that this is the status quo it's the game that we all tacitly agree to play and because we play this game we have to consider the rules that we set up and this all gets more complicated when you can consider that foreign involvement of these frankly superpowers right which brings me back to Donbass. Could they hold a referendum and just break away like Crimea? And it seems like this is likely going to be a result because a lot of the foundations have been laid out for this outcome. What's important to note here is that if this happens, it won't truly be or solely be because the people of Donbass want to become part of Russia because, as we've pointed out many times with you know limited exceptions like the breakup of the Soviet Union, you know, what gives a separatist moment the ability to exist, unfortunately, comes down to the regional powers and their interests. When Yugoslavia broke up, it wasn't because the Bosniaks had a heart-to-heart with the Serbians, right? They fought a bloody war, and the international community backed Bosnia, and that's why we have a Bosnia-Herzegovina today. So, as I've outlined, there's already a bloody war going on in the Donbass region. The question of the outcome of Donbass separatist movements comes down to two major regional powers. That's NATO and Russia. Russia already has 90,000 troops on the border. And while I genuinely believe that there won't be an all-out invasion of the Donbass by Russian forces, I still see it as a symbolic show of support for that inevitable annexation. From my perspective, the existence of those troops is just military tripwire. So it's a way for Russia to make Ukraine and NATO think twice about any major offensives while they go back to a kind of hybrid approach in Donbass. 
It's a reminder, I think, of the last time in Ukraine that you know Ukraine tried to do an offensive in Donbass because Russia wiped the floor with them and nobody came to their rescue. <laughs> you know, so I don't think a, st a second stealth invasion is the goal here. I think the goal is to annex the region through a referendum. And I think the playbook looks like this. So you have to have a reason to annex the region. I pointed out a couple reasons. Maybe it's maybe it's the, the coal. Maybe it's um, NATO expansion. Maybe it's some other thing that we don't know. Maybe Putin's just like, you know, horny. I don't know. It doesn't matter. They have a reason. Then you play up the regional instability and dissent, you know, in regions neighboring Russia. And then you start issuing Russian passports and citizenships to residents in that area, which, by the way, is happening and then you have a military presence there or you manufacture one with a snap military exercise to defend the russians in the area and the military acts as a military tripwire preventing the host country from using force because they don't want to fuck with russia and then you use that crisis as a reason to have a referendum right it's really bad here you guys should you know maybe think about voting to leave and then they will, because why would they want to stay? It's it's a fucking nightmare. And then you annex the region. Easy. Well, can I add something to your tripwire sure. theory? So I said this in our last episode, but you know the Ukrainian government is requesting U.S. troops to That's right. go to these areas. Right. Obviously, mm -hmm. I mean, I think it's pretty apparent that they U.S. troops would play the same role. Exactly. They'd be tripwire. Right. It wouldn't be to fight. It would just be like, don't fuck around because you might end up hitting us. Meat shields. I mean, that's what that's what a lot of yeah, they're meat shields. I mean, that's mm -hmm. what a lot of U.S. troops are in, in the Middle East right now. The tripwire. That's right. And we have to ask ourselves whether or not we want to involve ourselves in that, right? Do I want to put, you know, my son or daughter or brother, you know, cousin, whatever? In I mean, the line look, of fire? look at look at that that guy who was that, i mean the poor guy who was killed um about two years ago at this point the translator right. who was a american citizen for three weeks and mm -hmm. he was i'm not saying that obviously i'm not trying to say one life is worth less than the other but you know we were willing to use him as tripwire um and you know that there's a guy in a, in a base in iraq who was killed um mm -hmm. who was um a translator and he was given american citizenship for three weeks and he was killed in a bombing no one really knows who the bombing was from um but the u.s government blamed shia militias on it and that was enough for them to launch pretty much a, a full-scale kind of a barrage against shia militias in iraq mm -hmm. which eventually leads up to a large pro protest at the embassy at the u.s embassy in iraq which leads to the death of Soleimani, mm -hmm. um, which is actually interesting because people from the who are working for Trump were coming out and they were saying they were criticizing. Uh, maybe we'll leave this for another day, but um, Trump people were coming out and saying that Netanyahu was willing. He deceived Trump into doing that and all the stuff. Um, but maybe we can save that for another time. We'll get maybe. too off point. But I mean, the like, exact look, words were Netanyahu was willing to sacrifice um, as many American lives as it took to uh, to uh, kill Soleimani. 
it's kind of fucked up, you know. It's yeah. you know, it's a, it's a but it's a le- it's kind of a legit and very well used tactic, right? To to have the meat shielding. Look, I I think again going back to Crimea, like this, all of the things that are happening in Donbass have already happened in Crimea. They already had that naval base, which was super important for them. It was a warm warm water base. You know, after the fall of the Soviet Union, there was a treaty with Ukraine that allowed them to keep the Black Sea Fleet there uh, and had like something like 15,000 personnel there while they were leasing the base at, in Sevastopol. And I think they had a contract for that to go until 2042, too. Uh, and then since 2008, and the Russian Black Fleet, like the Black Sea Fleet, has been pretty busy. They, during this, in the same year, uh, during the war with Georgia, which I'll talk more about in a second, they staged blockades in the Black Sea using Sevastopol's port. Uh, they, the Russian Navy uh, was engaged with Vietnam, Syria, and Venezuela, and Libya uh, for logistics and repair services in their ports, and they used uh, Sevastopol as a spring-off point for that. Um, they were a main source in supply routes for the Assad regime during the Syrian civil war. And uh, after uh, after the Syrian civil war forced Russia to stop using the naval base in one of their ports in Tartus, uh, Sevastopol became even more important, right? So there was obviously a reason why they would want why they want want Crimea in their re- in their region. And then they played up the descent, right? They used the the events of the Euromaidan and the Ukrainian Revolution as a way to play at the pre-existing dissent that Crimeans had against the new Ukrainian government. They offered to support them politically and militarily and, you know, through the presence of its base and, and, and obviously financially as well. And then as of as late as early 2014, Russia started giving them passports in Crimea. There's this like process of passportization where you just start assigning citizenship to people in other countries strategically because it gives you the ability to be like hey these are all you know russian so we're just protecting them we're just protecting our people but they just became russian you know they just yeah, became past- russian <laughs> not, not to say that their now. lives don't mean you anything. are russian now. again just like you, you said not to russian <laughs> It's, it's like that translator, like you were saying. It's not to say that their life doesn't mean any less. It's just the pretense is manufactured, right? I'm protecting Russians. These are Russian citizens. Yeah, well, they just became Russian citizens because you just made them Russian citizens. You know what I mean? And, and it's easy to get them to join because, like, it sucked in Crimea. And, and it sucks in Donbass right now, you know? During the pandemic— It sucks um, in most of Ukraine. Yeah, it really does. During the pandemic, dude, they because of the like ongoing conflict against the separatist groups, uh, Ukraine shut off a lot of the border crossing between um, East and West Ukraine. And so what what happened is like totally, you know, non-combatant like Ukrainians couldn't get into Ukraine uh, for many things. Like there was old pensioners, as you pointed out, there's a lot of old pensioners there who couldn't get their pension checks. Or, like, go to Kiev to do, like, business and shit, you know? They just couldn't go for, like, a really long time. The pretense was coronavirus and also the conflict. And that kind of, you know, leaves a sour taste in their mouth, right? So, yeah, they're going to be like, well, fuck you guys. Rather just join Russia. They're saying they got us. They'll they'll hook us up with pension here. Well, here here's where I think, you know, the, the main stem of the conflict comes from is that 
um, by by the late 2013, um, you know, by the Euro Maiden or the coup mm-hmm. or whatever, um, they there was a there was a contest that was really hard to find a compromise in, and I think most Ukrainians were forced to make a binary choice between dependency on the EU or being dependent on Russia. That's right. And I think most mm-hmm. Ukrainians supported close economic ties with both Russia and the EU. But that entire process just made impossible, um, nor was it really feasible to do that. Not because – let me pull this back a little bit. They were – I think most Ukrainians wanted to just have good relations with both sides, but they were given binary choices. And uh, the politics of it were the main reasons why the country was torn apart Um for sure. That's what I have to add. For um, sure. And I, w- I want to point out one more thing, and, and that's that the same exact pattern happened in South Ossetia and Abkhazia in Georgia. They have Russian, you know, connection. Like there was a lot of Russian-speaking people there. Obviously, you know, during the Soviet Union, they would export a bunch of random, you know, Russian-speaking people. Uh, people to different nations to quell dissent and so there there was a population there and and they already had some issues internal issues in georgia specifically the abkhazians and the um and the ossetians the south ossetians you know had their trouble with georgia and russia started kind of fanning that flame a little bit like oh yeah sucks that you're in georgia you know, it'd be really nice if you guys could live in Russia, right? Be, we'd be better to you because we're all Russian. And then they're like, all right, well, how about this? I'll give you a passport. You can be a citizen of Russia. And they took him. They, yeah, yeah, sure. Okay, now there's a bunch of actual Russian citizens in South Ossetia and Abkhazia. So what do they do? They invade it. And they occupy it. And they still occupy it till today. They haven't annexed it officially. And, and literally everyone in the world... The international community condemns the these actions, but I mean, when you look at it from the from the legal standpoint, it's like, oh, well, the Russians were just defending Russians, Russian citizens, <laughs> but they made it that way. <laughs> you know what I mean? That, it, that is interesting. That the the concept of giving out passports, um, yeah, it's something I want to explore probably more in some future episodes. For sure, for sure. Um, but I don't know. I think I think we're we're uh, at time at this point. Yeah. Or is there anything else that you want to add? Like the last thing is, is that all of the same patterns, right? That there are 300, an estimated 350,000 locals in Donbass who already have Russian citizenship, and that rate continues to increase. So, and they already have a military presence, so they can jump in. There's already a, there's a couple, at least a couple of reasons why Russia might want Donbass. And... They've done it before, <laughs> so why wouldn't they do it again? And, and they got away with it before. Why wouldn't they continue doing it? Well, it's it's interesting. Um, I think I think there's there's uh, some to it. Um, all right. Is there anything else you want to add to today's uh, episode of Bro History? Uh, no, the reason why I'm putting a haste at it is I'm just, my back is killing me sitting on the Pilates <laughs> machine at this point. <laughs> yeah, man. We're good. I'm, I'm good. 
All right, cool. Um, all right, thanks everyone for listening to another episode of Bro History. Um, I'm not sure how we're going to release this yet. Uh, I guess you'll know once we release it. Uh, but thanks for bearing with us through uh, the past couple of weeks. You know, as as uh, we move and as we do stuff and as we travel. Um, I know the episodes have not been consistent, but we appreciate you guys uh, still tuning in. Um, again, January will be a, a, a lot more stuff will be settled, so we'll, we'll be able to get back to our normal schedule. Uh, but thanks again for bearing with us. Um, if you like the show, rate and review the podcast. That is the number one way to support our show. And uh, you can also join us on Patreon. Uh, join us on Slack, where we actually talk a lot about Russia, uh, probably more than anything else on our Slack account. So uh, join us there. Join our Patreon to get access to that. Um, anything else, Danny? Mm, I got one quick thing, and it's funny. I was doing some research and, and talking to my girlfriend about Donbass, and she also didn't know where Donbass was, she, so she looked it up on a map. And uh, we went down a rabbit hole. There was this uh, hotel called Hotel Donbass, and the Google translations for some of the reviews were hilarious. I just want to read two of them to you. Hotel Donbass? Yeah, the Hotel Donbass. Uh, and it's in it's in an area. Hotel in... Donbass, what a lovely place. <laughs> yeah. Welcome All right, so... to the Hotel, Hotel Donbass. Oh. You know, these are these are translated through Google Translate, so it you know it might be absolutely terrible. But I woke uh... up and I woke up and wondered kidney is gone. <laughs> <laughs> no. All right. So this is a one star review, one out of five. Uh, so it says, when I pressed the clay, your hole in the floor cannot even be called a toilet. I had to do things in the sink. <laughs> here's a here's a three star review. One house is burning. That's it. <laughs> three stars. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. Join the, the outside. Uh, yeah, join join a join a join the conversation. <laughs> Review us. <laughs> One house is burning. <laughs> One house is burning. One star. Um, all right. Thanks, everyone. Um, and peace. Peace.